Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Welcome to this week's Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General of the IA, here from our Westminster studio on what's been mini budget day, spring statement day. What do we make of it all? Are there the first signs that Chancellor Rishi Sunak is moving Britain towards being a bit more of a low-tax, less high-spending economy, or are we getting ahead of ourselves there? And are there really choppy waters ahead that he doesn't know how to navigate? We'll be dissecting Rishi Sunak's spring statement with a stellar panel of guests. All of that coming up on this week's Live with Littlewood. Shakalaka, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's Live with Littlewood on, what do we call it, Spring Statement Day, Mini Budget Day, a lot to digest. I'm feeling a bit more optimistic than I was this morning. Mind you, that's not saying a great deal, but to help us pick through today's mini budget, mitigation budget, as I'm calling it. Later up in the show, we've got leading economist Vicky Price. Uh, She'll be joining me to ask whether the measures announced will actually really meaningfully help with the cost of living. From the home team, our very own Christopher Snowden, he'll be discussing whether government spending is totally out of control and what he would do about it. And from our friends just down the road, we'll be joined by Duncan Simpson, from the Taxpayers' Alliance. He'll be here to debate whether the Chancellor has missed a trick by failing to reform and really go for growth as our strategy. But first up, very warm welcome back to Live Littlewood to the Member of Parliament for Buckingham, co-chair of the Free Market Forum of Conservative MPs. Give a very warm welcome to Greg Smith. Hi, Greg. Glad to have you with us. See so, I mean, I think everybody knows, Greg, the kind of headline announcements, fuel duty cut by 5p and a litre, uh, no VAT on energy efficient products. I think this means if you're a rich landlord and you put in solar panels, you don't have to pay that anymore. Bigger parts of it, national insurance threshold increased by 3,000. Nobody saw that coming. That's the rabbit, isn't it? And a promise that by 2024, the basic rate of income tax will be cut from a penny, 20p to 19p. And there was some um, business rates relief to the retail, hospitality and leisure sector. What is your summing up of it? I think it was actually quite a strong spring statement. I don't think anybody saw uh, a real tax cut, the national insurance allowance go up. No one really saw that coming. That was the big surprise in the Commons Chamber when he announced it. And the fuel duty was music to my ears. I've been campaigning on that for a very long time. I'm actually pleased that we've frozen it for so long, but that never got us away. And the fact that we are so disproportionately high on fuel tax compared to everywhere else in the world. And we're still 70-odd P more expensive on a litre of Mm -hmm. diesel Mm -hmm. than our friends in the United States, but it's positive. It is a step in the right direction. And actually, it's, it's starting the seeds of simplifying the tax system. By, bring, by equalising bring, the, bring the NI allowance in line with income tax, but also even the small things like uh, zero rating VAT on retrofitted insulation, solar panels, all of these green things in that we had this oddity before that if you were building a brand new house, they were zero rated to put a solar panel on the roof or, or green technologies. But if you retrofitted it, you had to pay full whack. That is actually, it, it, it's a small step. It's a baby step towards tax simplification. But if that's the start of something bigger, I, I, I want to support the Chancellor in it. So, OK, I mean, I, I was, as I say, feeling a bit more upbeat when mm. the Chancellor sat down than when he stood up. But my expectations were on the floor, I was expecting to be saying this evening, I'll give him a two out of 10. Mm. I've now said, you know, a six, maybe a seven out of 10. Some of my IEA colleagues don't believe I should be that generous. But let me give the case for the prosecution. Still got, I think, and I'm not totally sure how this will change by the announcements today, 
the largest tax burden as a proportion of GDP since Clement Attlee was Prime Minister in 1950. And you may have seen a, a graph that um, Sky News' Sophie Ridge put to Rishi Sunak. We checked their numbers and uh, we think their numbers are right. We'll put that on the screen for our viewers now. This is a bar chart showing um, how much taxes have gone up or down under each um, chancellor over recent years. And as you can see, Rishi Sunak, well, he's kind of, you know, keeping pace with Gordon Brown. Now, Rishi, in his defence, would say... Yeah, but none of these other chancellors had to deal with the pandemic in their first couple of years in office. But it's quite a telling graph, do you it, not think? It, 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 it is a telling graph. And, of course, Rishi famously has a picture of Nigel Lawson on his... The on last tax-cutting chancellor. And yeah, as this chart clearly shows, he was the last serious tax-cutting chancellor this country had. And we've got to get to that place. Now, I'm not happy about the level of taxation in this country. No free market, classical liberal economists could possibly be happy with the level of tax in this country. But what we've seen today, and to be fair to Rishi, as you said, he's had two years of pandemic. He's had to be paying people's wages, borrowing for business grants, all the rest of it. That, that was the right thing to do to keep people afloat. He's got £450 billion mm -hmm. debt to pay off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But today was that first glimmer of hope that he is going to come good on his tax-cutting credentials. He's already pre-announced penny-off income tax uh, for two years' time. I hope that becomes a lot more than a penny-off income tax in a couple of years' time. But if we're looking for those green shoots, that he is going to become, post-pandemic, a tax-cutting, proper free-market chancellor that's going to encourage growth, allow the private sector to flourish, and he references private sector-led growth throughout his spring statement and in the documents that have accompanied it, then I think there are reasons to be cheerful. So is, is this, uh, I was describing it on the radio earlier as, I think this is the beginning of a course correct. And, OK, we've had the pandemic to deal with. That kind of knocks every trajectory and bar graph, you know, all over the place. So it's, it's a bit unfair to judge the government in terms of tax and spend just over the last couple of years. No substantial tax cuts yet, but I'd already, if you like, baked in the national insurance rise. Mm -hmm. Back of the fag packet calculation, I think the threshold in increase more or less mitigates that. Not for everyone, if you're, earning more, than 50 grand, yeah. if you're earning more than 50 grand a year, you're still going to end up paying more. But that's more or less a, not far off a wash. So that seemed to be a good step. On income tax, surely he's going to have to go further than that in 2024. I mean, he, with a rather clever rhetorical flourish today, he said, well, I, you know, I promised to increase the national insurance threshold by £300, and there was a oh, shame, you know, is that it? But I'm going to increase it by £3,000. Should those of us who are on the free market, low-tax side, who've had, you know, a desperate time of it with budgets over the last 10, 15 years, really... Should we be taking these baby steps as there is now a course correction? And he further said that, you know, if he has room for manoeuvre in future, I suspect he's got a bit more room for manoeuvre than, he, than he's uh, letting on, then it's tax cuts that will have not higher public spending. I think it's almost a direct quote. Yeah, I, if, if we take this as the start of, a, you know, use management consultant speak, the start of a journey, mm -hmm. then there is clear... Signs of recovery, you know, we are still a growing economy. We're not in recession. We are still a growing economy. That the economy will bounce off this, that uh, he can get the deficit down and the debt down. And let's never forget the size of the debt and have that room to be able to properly cut income tax, not just the base rate of income tax, but hopefully do something about the threshold or the overall higher rate uh, of income tax in a couple of years' time. Because we know time after time, when George Osborne cut the higher rate that Gordon Brown put up uh, when he was Chancellor, we saw revenue to the Treasury go up. Mm -hmm. And actually, something that I'm a little bit nervous about, some of the rhetoric around the spring statement today and around the tax cut announcement, is he talks about it being fully costed as if there's a spending cut. You know, I'm not arguing against spending cuts. The British state spends too much money. But as if there is some spending cut mm -hmm. underneath it, when actually we know you cut income tax, chances are you will bring more money into the revenue because there's less uh, less incentive to, to avoid it or evade it, and actually it stimulates the economy. Businesses yeah, you actually get, the, you, you get that kind of hit of growth, yeah. right? Which, so even if, 
even if your revenues aren't impressively better after year one. If you can get growth into the economy, then come, I don't know, year two, three, year two, four, three, five, six. Revenue will be it, up. It's looking a lot better. So was he insufficiently bold then? Should he have said, no, to hell with it. We're going to knock tuppence off income tax now. We're gonna, I'm going to cancel the Nick's rise and increase the threshold. Let's just go for it big time. Do you think something is just holding him back here? Is he, is he still worried about the deficit? I think he's worried about the the deficit. He's certainly worried about the overall level of government borrowing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the hangover of the pandemic. Uh, I think he's also concerned about, uh, as we all are, the unfolding events in Ukraine. You know, is there going to be a, a significant requirement to increase defence spending, mm-hmm. aid spending mm-hmm. to support our friends in Ukraine coming up. I think he's probably right to be a little bit cautious, a little bit hawkish, particularly over the deficit. However, you know, I'm certainly not going to sit back and say job done. You know, I'm still going to be pushing him to go further on NI, further on income tax and to do it sooner, as well as actually business taxation. Talking to lots of businesses in my constituency, we've got a couple of enterprise zones, high-tech manufacturing businesses. They've loved the super deduction. They've loved being able to get some money back in the system to buy new equipment, take on new floor space. But they are worried that that's going to drop off a cliff next year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, they want, instead of it being a, a time-limited business tax cut, uh, a more sustained drop in corporation tax, drop in uh, general taxation on businesses to stimulate economic growth to get yeah. them spending more money on new machinery, more floor sure. space, taking on more people. And he's, he's actually on business taxes, no, nothing much came up, but he's, he's going to have a long, hard look at things like whether the apprenticeship levy yep. is working and you know why private sector R&D is so low compared to uh, other members of the OECD. He came up with no, so there's going to be some sort of consultation process, mm. but that at least indicates that's in his mind to try and find some better tax system in the future. Yeah, he cited this number that you know, there's about a 4% differential between between us and most other Western economies on on R&D spending and and business investment. I think we do have to close that gap. I think some of the Brexit dividends, uh, now we're the other side of the pandemic and and we're a couple of years out, will play to that. Uh, However, we've got to be a little bit cautious about tax cuts or government schemes, spending schemes that are very micromanaged and specific. I would much rather he went for a broader brush reduction in corporation tax, yeah. reduction in, in general business taxation, just to give all businesses that, that, that yeah. push rather than picking winners. And well, winners. isn't that the sort of evidence, not my field of expertise, but the apprenticeship levy? I yeah. mean, it's all a bit fiddly, and it's kind of, if you train people having got a certificate for this, you'll get a rebate for that. Far yeah. better just to say, we're going to take this off your business rates, off your off VAT, off corporation yeah. tax, it, pick a line. It's classic civil service bureaucracy, the, mm. the tick box exercises, you know, a plus B plus C might equal something completely unrelated. Uh, it, it, if we just have a simple approach to saying to business, right, yeah, this is your corporation tax level. After that, get on with it, folks. Right. Uh, and we'll keep it down as much as we can. That will work. Um, so one of your colleagues, good friend of the IA as well, David Davis MP, has, has said that he feared a bit that these, the, the government today, and Rishi in particular, was a, an Augustine Thatcherite. Lord, make me a tax cutter, but just not yet. And, <laughs> and indeed, with the, with the income tax thing we've heard, that's quite... What do you make of it? It's quite bizarre in a way. I mean, obviously, I welcome income tax going down, but it's a bit odd, isn't it, to announce in the spring of 2022 a commitment that you're going to execute in the spring of 2024, especially as his whole speech was peppered with how totally uncertain everything was and things might get worse. I've never known a chancellor, I think, to make a pledge that's not going to start now. It's just going to come in in two years' time. You're right, but I think Rishi was starting to, to gain a little bit of a credibility gap between his tax-cutting rhetoric, his Mays lecture, his uh, various speeches in the House of Commons and the reality on the ground. And I think he needed to put some some real meat on the bone around those tax-cutting credentials. Now, I wish that income tax cut was now or next year. 2024 is still a long time 
away and a lot can change in that time. Let's yep. hope it changes for the better and he can cut it by more than a penny. But I think it was to, to answer that credibility gap between the rhetoric and, sure. the, and the reality. And, but do you think now with, I mean, I, I find budgets and mini budgets all a bit tiresome, to be honest. It's literally a tiring day for me. But a lot of it's about theatre and presentation, not about economics. Do you think with him having announced that now, Two years hence, assuming he's still Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, a lot could change. Um, if he announces in the spring of 2024, and the great news is I'm cutting income tax to 19p, that's not going to be much of a rabbit out of much of a hat, is it? That's already baked in. Now, you might say that's good news. He's going to have to go further if he wants to make a statement in two years' time. Uh, exactly that. Um, yeah, on the other side of that coin, he then can't be accused of a pre-election bribe pulled out of the hat weeks before sure. a general election, if it's been baked in for two years. At the end of the day, though, a penny off income tax will be the first substantial income tax cut for about 20 years. Yeah. Let's take it. Let's not argue with him on that uh, and make the case of why he should go further, where we are on the Laffer curve that proves to him that he can safely take two, three pence off uh, income tax and still end up in a position where he's not going to come under pressure when it comes to NHS budgets or police budgets or schools budgets. So you're like me, you're not dancing on the rooftops, you're not punching the air, but you've got a bit more of a spring in the step than you had this morning. I, I didn't see a lot of today coming. I thought it, I didn't think we were going to get many announcements at all, maybe something on fuel duty because that's where the real pressure point is right now. The NI stuff, very, very good news. Very quintessential, actually. You know, people like me that have been saying, actually scrap the NI rise altogether, actually turning around and saying, but yeah, we've got this backlog in the NHS. It is still a priority to spend that very specific pot of money on that very specific worthy cause. But to mitigate that, ring fence that money, and cut somewhere else. That's sure. actually quite clever. Well, Greg, stay with us. I wanted to have a, another take on this. Delighted to, to welcome onto Live with Littlewood this evening. Leading economist and business consultant, please give a very, very warm welcome to Vicky Price. <laughs> Vicky, great to see you. Great to see you. Um, so, Vicky, what's your take on this? What, were you surprised by anything he said? And do you think that the cost of living crisis has been tackled? I mean, here's just some numbers to conjure with. By the way, I should say, from my perspective, I'm not sure that we should always look to politicians to sorting out every problem in the economy. Um, but if you're looking at a cost of living crisis, uh, those earning £30,000 a year pay about £12,000 every year in tax. Um, £4,400 on housing and energy bills. So right, energy might be going up, but you're still paying three times as much on tax. Food going up again, but only 3000 I say only. I mean, all of those numbers are going up. Um, so the cost of living crisis is, in large part, a free market liberal like me would say, mm -hmm. Vicky. Taxes are too high. Sure, housing and energy and food are part of the equation, but it's tax that's the real pinch, even if people don't notice it because it comes straight out of their wage packet. Is that a fair analysis of the cost of living problem? I think tax matters. There's no doubt about that. But in fact, I was rather disappointed that there wasn't more in the spring statement, um, partly on the help to business. There was hardly anything at all. Mm. So actually, I've just been listening to you. It would have been so much simpler if you just didn't go ahead with the NI increase. Then you wouldn't have had to do everything else. And of course, for businesses, with the exception perhaps of the employment allowance, which has gone up a little bit, and and uh, you know things that had already been pre-announced for smaller firms on on business rates, um, he really didn't do very much at all. Or even, except of course for those firms that use a lot of petrol and diesel mm -hmm. to move things around, um, that was all really. I mean, given that corporation tax is going up mm. to 23% as of next yep. month. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are these huge energy costs that are coming up for them, plus, of course, of the employment costs that they have. Uh, I thought he did, he did a minimum amount. That's really support. interesting. What more would you have done? You would have cancelled the next rise. I would have cancelled it, yes. I mean, after all, you know, we're talking about 12 billion. Uh, I mean, he's giving back, more or less, a total of about 17, I think. Um, for next year, so uh, by doing all the other things, so if you add them all together, um, he could just very, very easily have just not done the NI increase and mm. then be been considered a hero mm. because he's been listening. But obviously the Treasury has got a bit of a problem uh, to uh, really justify whatever it is that may be thought out as a good thing by Boris Johnson. 
Um, so there is, uh, there is obviously something going on. That's why we haven't had the energy uh, strategy yet, because you know, obviously there will have to be some money yep. being spent on nuclear or other stuff. Um, so there are concerns in the Treasury that this may be very costly for the future. We have the armed forces probably going to be receiving quite a lot in the future. So they're being careful. And of course, the really important thing for me is that given the huge uncertainty that exists in terms of growth, and the, they cut, of course, the forecast for growth. Quite dramatically, much. actually. Quite yeah, dramatically. From what, so over six to less than four for this yes. year. Yeah, yeah. So, so he may, of course, be worried additionally, that's uh, the Chancellor, that some of those OBR forecasts of uh, the fiscal side, which accompany, of course, the growth forecast as well, just won't materialise if we have a lot less growth in the future. Yeah. Greg, let me put this to you on the cost of living side. I mean, you know, I'm not poo-pooing that people are going to struggle and to pay energy bills if they're you know, on thin margins. But the, the point I've been trying to get across in all the interviews I'm doing is that the biggest cost of living, overwhelmingly, practically for everybody, is tax. Yep. I gave you the numbers of people earning £30,000 a year. That's there or thereabouts, the average salary. £50,000 a year. OK, well, maybe you're not struggling to get by at this point. But you're probably paying £22,000 in tax, mm. direct and indirect. £4,000 or so on food, £4,500 on household expenses, maybe as much as £7,000 in transport costs. All of the debate and the argument seems to be focusing on these things, which are going up and will pinch. But I would say, well, it, I wouldn't say it's small beer compared to your tax bill, but it's pretty small beer. The cost of living crisis, I mean, I had a naughty tweet at Rishi the other day, and he said, you know, I will do everything I can do to help with the cost of living crisis. So I said, well, that's damned good news, because you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and the biggest cost of living is tax. So it seems to me, I'm delighted to hear from Vicky, she would have been rather more radical here. You know, isn't that really where we need to get the argument to be? The biggest cost of living problem is tax. I, I think, yeah, that, that is categorically true and right. Uh, of course, actually, on the energy bills, on the fuel bills, which is why the fuel duty cut is so good, the problem, the only lever the government has to pull is the taxation lever. So, yes, the biggest bill people pay is their income tax. After that is probably their council tax, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which, you know, people are getting their new council tax bills on the mats. You know, there aren't many parts of the country where that's a very pleasant letter to be landing yeah, yeah. at the moment. But then it's, of course, everything that's a little bit more hidden. It's the, it is the, the, the 61p a litre on, on petrol and diesel. It is the 20% tax on top of that on yeah, your petrol and diesel. Yeah, it's the 5% yeah. VAT on your energy bills. Why didn't we just get rid of that altogether? Those are the levers government can actually pull. Uh, you know, I'd be very critical of them if they started trying to interfere with the market, trying to interfere with the crude oil price or, or, or whatever it might be, you know, that, that is not going to end well if they try that. They can strip away the punitive levels of tax that we have uh, on these things that everybody has to buy. So, uh, Vicky, let me come to you. Greg was saying at the top of the show that you know he has been pushing for a fuel duty cut. He's finally got it, 5p per litre. Obviously, it's been frozen for a while. It, was that, again, too modest? New Zealand, left-wing government, uh, cut fuel duty by 27, 25 cents. That's about 12.5p in sterling. Uh, so twice as generous, uh, twice, more than twice as big a cut as here in the UK. Ireland has cut fuel duty by 16p yeah. per litre. Uh, you suddenly look at that, and again, has, even in this area, has the Chancellor been um, somewhat too uh, safety-first, cautious, not radical enough? Well, yes, uh, except that you've got to look at that in the context of the fact that fuel duty has been frozen for the last 12 years. And if we had continued to increase fuel duty, as had been the case before, we would be collecting about eight billion a year more right now. So there's already been a huge amount of help that's been given as a result. But it's absolutely true that quite a lot of other countries have uh, cut taxes right now. So we are the only one which is increasing it. So. Uh, there may be some reason for it in the long term, but uh, for the moment it just looks out of place by comparison to other countries. Um, but of course, a lot of that um, extra help that's been given has been in the form of subsidies for uh, consumers and businesses in other countries. And also what we've seen, interestingly enough, in other types of increases in tax, so households and businesses up to a point in general being helped, but then Italy has just introduced, of course, uh, a windfall profits tax mm -hmm. on energy companies, which is 
is then redistributing in the form of subsidies. So that's a package of about four and a half billion euros. So uh, there is a bit of rebalancing probably that quite a lot of people were, were looking for. Yes, we cut some of the taxes for businesses in some areas generally, particularly the SMEs, but do something for those that are really doing quite well out of the problems that we're having at present and redistribute that. As long as, of course, you're, you're certain that it's not going to affect anything to do with investment, which we absolutely desperately need, I think, more in, in the gas and oil sector right now if we are to uh, focus a bit more on energy security. Uh, Greg, uh, I felt a little sorry for Rachel Reeves. I think she was as taken as unawares by some of these statements as the Conservative backbench. It's always a tricky thing for the opposition to have to stand up uh, sight unseen. Obviously, the Labour Party's been pressing for this windfall tax on uh, energy companies' profits. What's the argument against it from your side of the aisle? Yeah, I, 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 I can't agree on a windfall tax at all. I, I think that if you plough another level of tax onto a sector that's already charging very high amounts of money, there's only one thing they're going to do with it at the end of the day. They're going to put it back onto the bill payers. And so the net result of a windfall tax, to my mind, is going to be higher bills. Just gets passed on. You get passed on. For the very people that you're trying to help, they'll end up with a higher electricity bill, gas bill, uh, whatever it might be. So I'm against it for that reason. But actually, it's this investment point that just came up that's really critical. Because given that we are, and we can have an argument about the rights or wrongs of it, but given we are set on this decarbonisation path by 2050, it is going to be enormously expensive to replace our current energy needs with a cleaner alternative, be that nuclear, which I favour, or wind, or solar, Shale. hydro, or shale. I think we should be. We should be fracking again. We should be using our own natural resources. However... It is the energy companies that we need to actually be developing the new technology, developing better, cleaner ways of ensuring that we can power our, heat our homes, power our cars, go on aeroplanes on holiday or business trips, etc. Yep. If they stop doing that, because they say, sorry, government, you've taken the money we were going to do it off us, that is a huge problem for that path. Uh, I, I agree uh, with the principle of this, but if you look at what oil companies have done in the last few years, they haven't been investing. Partly because, of course, we've been changing the, the goalposts mm, yeah, uh, in a way, but they haven't. And what they're doing with a lot of the money that they're making is they're paying dividends and they're buying back shares, all that sort of stuff, which we know doesn't lead to any productive investment. So, yes, of course, they have plans to do a lot in renewables, uh, but they should be held to account a lot more. Uh, they have made all this money, even if they pay a certain amount of that, there's still plenty left. To invest. I mean, that's the argument in favour of it. So it's a one-off thing. The Conservatives have done it before, so it's not as if yeah, it's, no, I get that. it's not, not new. Yeah. But the, 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 what, um, the, obviously, as soon as the Chancellor stands up and says he struts his stuff, and especially if he comes up with something rather surprising, I was with the left-wing economist Richard Murphy in the BBC studios. He said, he said oh, you know, there's, he's not going to do anything on the threshold. And I said, actually, that might be a smart move. And lo and behold, uh, my prediction, my guess, was proven right. But then we tend to focus on what exactly has the Chancellor done, and everybody calculates how much would a road user be better off or worse off or a family of four or whatever. What did he miss, Vicky, in your view? I mean, you've mentioned that you would have gone for a windfall tax, but what, you know, should he actually have not tinkered around with income tax or NICs at all? Maybe he should have retained the super deduction for sake of argument, done more on business rates. Is there a kind of elephant in the room tax that went unsaid that would have been a higher priority for Chancellor Price? Yes, I think if you were looking for investment, which is absolutely what we need, uh, then you should have kept allowances at the super deduction rate as we fed it. Who knows? I personally think we're going to have a series of other mini-budgets. You, you touched on that mm. earlier. Uh, because the, the, the crisis is going to get worse, without any doubt. So we might get some more. But yes, businesses, we do need them. Without them, they won't employ the people. Uh, we're not going to get the profits to then be sort of redistributed to whoever. And you won't get the demand also from, from people who are not, just not going to go out and spend. So, so a focus, greater focus on businesses should have been what you should have looked at. Plus, of course, doing something about the energy costs of businesses. And it's not just, of course, the energy costs. Everything else is going up in terms of the cost of businesses. And we, we know that many will not be able to survive at this rate. Interest rates are also going up, as we know. And then with markets closing in various places, as they will do, um, uh, if this war goes on as it is, uh, it's going to make life even more difficult. 
Greg, you touched earlier on you were you were hoping that there could be a better break for businesses. Is that the bit that was sort of left unsaid that would have been a priority for Chancellor Smith? I, I think, yeah, support for business has been missed there. I think even, even if he just said he's going to extend the super deduction by another two, three years, give a bit of business certainty, a bit of planning um, for, for, for the individual businesses out there looking at their, their medium term plans for sure. And the other thing that, that, that was conspicuous by its absence in the spring statement today was any real mention of the overall level of public spending. Now, from one level, that's a good thing, because you yeah. don't put anything up. <laughs> but equally, that, that boil does have to be lanced as to just how much the British state is spending on a day-to-day -day basis. You have given me unprompted the exact right segue into the next section of the programme, Greg. So Greg and Vicky, stay with us. Vicky, shuffle up, because I'm going to in invite another guest on at the, at the moment. So give a very warm welcome to, from the home team, the IEA's Head of Lifestyle Economics, Chris Snowden. How are you, Chris? Good to see you. Good to see you. Beer in hand, I see. Just what I expect on my head of lifestyle economics. Uh, so we're calling this section, Hey Big Spenders, is state largesse here to stay. We've toyed with the idea of are the Conservatives slowly returning to being the party of perhaps slightly lower taxes. He had a lot to say today, the Chancellor, on tax. Very little about spending, although you might take that as a good thing if you're something of a fiscal hawk. There weren't a whole raft of spending commitments, usually in the budget proper. You see him singling, you know, singling out 110 different Tory MPs and saying, I'm giving you three million for this museum and you five million for this bypass. Didn't really say anything about spending, did he, Chris? But, but even before the pandemic, government spending was about 41% of GDP. During the pandemic itself, you know, extraordinary economic times, I accept that, increased to north of 50%, 52% of GDP. Chris, what's your take? Is big spending here to stay, or did you take some sucker from the Chancellor today, who often, has often said in speeches but never yet backed up with policy, uh, that actually, if there's room in the future, he's going to go for lowering taxes, not increasing public spending? I'm sure he'd love to lower taxes. Um, I, I think he's absolutely sincere when he says he wants to lower taxes, and I think he's absolutely sincere when he says he wants to uh, balance the books. But the trouble is, you can't do that you know, without cutting public spending. Uh, it's not a matter of right, uh, increasing public spending. You've, you've got to come up with some ideas to cut it. Uh, and that's what we at the IEA need to do. We indeed we have done. I mean, I think 10 years ago we had a very good book called Sharper Axes, Lower Taxes, which explained we'll exactly... We'll put a link in that below, yeah. It was pretty radical. You don't have to take all of it. But it actually explained what you need to do to avoid disaster. And at this point, we are on the brink of disaster, I would say. Um, uh, we, we, we haven't got a plan. We, we've got a, there was tinkering around the edges, you said, Mark, today. There was a few good bits in it here or there, but none of it really makes any difference. The, the, the basic point is, this is a government, and not the first one, that is built on debt and borrowing and printing money. The most important figure in the statement today was £83 billion. That is how much the Chancellor and the OBR think that we'll be paying in interest on the debt in yep. the next financial year. That's, that's quite an eye-watering figure. But, Greg, you, you were saying just before Chris joined us that, you know, state spending's too high. And uh, um, let me put you on the spot here, because oftentimes I hear from Conservative MPs, in general, state, state spending's too high. But it's devilishly difficult to get you to any specific area of state spending that you'll cut or abolish. Mm. So there's this is with general consensus, it needs to go down. But the minute you sort of say, well, how about, you know, never bringing back the triple lock or, or um, you know, reducing expenditure on education or uh, being less generous on universal credit, any specific area, there, there are whales of pain. So if you were looking at the totality of public spending and already as Vicky has um, suggested you know it wouldn't be ridiculous to assume defense spending might double mm -hmm. to five percent of GDP where are you going to find these cuts from uh, look, there's lots of things I would happily cut I'll start with the big one I've got 19 miles of it through my constituency let's get rid of HS2 uh, yeah that is you know 165 billion pounds worth of spend that no private sector investor will touch with a barge pole yeah that's got to be an alarm bell mm -hmm. as to the viability of this thing. Yeah, we're spending £96 billion on the integrated rail plan in the north. Do we have to do all of that? Even if it's spread out, even if we, even if we just accept for a minute, and I know this is heresy at the IEA, but if we just accept for a minute that the state is going to spend £96 billion on railways 
in the Midlands and the north of England. Do we have to do it at this pace all at once? Yeah, that is serious cash, all from the taxpayer, no private sector investment. Let's rein that back a bit uh, okay. and control spending. Well, there, there's a... Uh, Vicky, what would your take on this be? Because I think I'm right in saying if you were to add together what the government spends on education, healthcare and welfare, transfer payments, including pensions, I think that's north of 60% of government spending just in those three areas. So it sort of seems to me if you're not going to tackle those areas at all and you know, decide that whatever, the pensions budget's going to go down because the health budget's going to go up, if you let those grow and the demographics there are going to tend to lead to them growing, you know, more pensioners, more health care, more social care, it's very difficult to get government spending under control, isn't it? I mean, you sort of squeeze local government spending or, you know, abolish the Arts Council or something. But this is absolute nickel and dime stuff. I agree, and I wouldn't worry too much about it. There are some things you can cut, I have to say. As an economist, I don't really think that HS2, uh, the cost-benefit is justified, but so I, I agree with you there. Uh, but there could be loads and loads of other things that could be done which are better in terms of improving the... So I don't mind the north and the east-west, all that stuff, which absolutely needs to be done. So improving local uh, transport networks and so on absolute must if we want to have this productivity improvement and the leveling up to happen properly but I do think that we're going to still need to be spending a lot on education a lot more than we have done so far um, and and of course NHS the demands are going to increase and as there will be social care so what you need I'm afraid instead is to have growth and that growth will bring that um, tax in and you will need to spend less, perhaps, on unemployment benefits if indeed everyone works and works at the proper uh, wage level as well. So you don't have to give all these tax credits additionally as, uh, as people you know, get into, into work. And of course, with minimum wage going up, that could improve a little bit. But um, So we need to think about growth. And that's why we're talking earlier about investment, which is an absolute must. The worry is that if you look at the OBR forecast right now, which came out today, they have growth go back to you know 1.8 two percent if you're lucky over the next three or four years well you can't get anything with that yeah, type that's of growth feeble in historical terms isn't i mean it? really <laughs> feeble and productivity under that is going to be pretty poor particularly since we well let's see what happens whether we can really invest more in innovation new techniques if we manage to keep uh, the unemployment rate low which is by no means certain. I think they've been too optimistic about employment, especially if the economy really slows down, as it's supposed yep. to be. Um, so, yeah, I worry a little bit about that. But growth, I'm afraid, is the answer. Greg, I know you've got to leave us in just a second, but I, I said at the outset I'd probably give this 7 out of 10, this statement. I mean, that might be... I'm punching the air a bit because I thought it was going to be a two out of ten. So, I was, but, but, so and I think actually Annabelle, our director of comms, might have talked me down to a six. But six and a half, something like that. Are you going to give me a number out of ten, or are you just going to talk in flowery adjectives about how much you like it no, or dislike I, I, it? I'll, I'll give you a number. I mean, let's be a bit more generous and go for a seven and a half. But, but like you, uh, I went into the chamber of the House of Commons a bit nervous earlier. I didn't think we were going to get very much at all, uh, and, and I'm going to take it and bank it as the first step, a baby step, back to a low-tax, free-market, classical liberal treasury. Well, that's an encouraging note. You've almost bumped me up to an eight with those words, Greg. So thanks very much for joining us. It is half-time, so given it's the half-time interval, uh, what should we talk about football? I just want to give you a quick promotion of our recent football discussion paper called Red Card. As you might know, the government's presently considering Tracy Crouch's proposals to introduce an English regulator of football. I, I thought we agreed that the economy was already far too regulated. We don't really need Rachel Reeves and Rishi Sunak arguing over the dispatch box about the interpretation of the offside rule, but uh, they, there you go. But here's a short promotional clip. Um, uh, we, we had a panel discussion here last night that you'll be able to see in, uh, in full on YouTube soon, and, uh, and a link also to our recently released paper on Does England Need? and uh, football regulator. We pretty firmly say no. Are we outside of our minds 
We have a Premier League, which is virtually a form of incarnation of the ESL. The only slight difference was the original position of the ESL was not about meritocracy. And these guys, like this report, are going to start hard and pair back, because if you start in a negotiation with somebody and you punch them in the stomach and they breathe in, you roll over them. If you, they push back, then you negotiate. But you start with your strongest position. And the ESL guys were starting with the strongest position. And by the way, who defined UEFA and FIFA as people that aren't doing something similar with meritocracy attached to it? It was they're trying desperately to unwind by using coefficients to justify big clubs competing in their tournaments without merit attached to it as a methodology they wish to deploy. So the premise of this report, and I don't know how many of you have read it, so I've read the 162 pages and it's two hours of my life that I won't get back because a lot of it does not make sense. It doesn't hang together. You know, the, the real reality is we've got regulators left, right and centre. There is nobody besides, with due respect, some blowhard politicians that think that this is something that vaguely resembles common sense for football. None of the major players in football, you might get some smaller clubs further down the pyramid that sold themselves for things like the Elite Player Performance Programme because they were being given given 250 grand a year by the Premier League and then they gave away their compensation rights for young boys that they produced and effectively mortgaged their futures by doing so. Nobody, not the EFL, not the self-serving Premier League clubs, what independent regulation is, is a, is a, is a stalking horse to bring the Premier League... So that was Simon Jordan at the IA earlier this week talking about football regulation. And we'll make sure there's a link in the chat and in the show notes below to the IA's recent paper by Victoria Houston and Len Shackleton on football regulation and where it might go wrong. So that's the end of the half-time football. Back to the real business of uh, the overarching fiscal policy of the government. And to talk us through tax spend, and we're going to be moving on to growth as well, great to welcome back to Live with Littlewood the Research Director and our good friends at the Taxpayers Alliance, Duncan Simpson. Duncan. Good to have you with us, Duncan. Now, Listen, I'm going to put a bit of a challenge to you, Duncan. Uh, you guys at the Taxpayers Alliance, great at highlighting waste and all of the rest of it. You come up with some sort of you know, eye-watering stories where you don't, need, you don't know whether to laugh or cry when you're reading them about government waste. But I want to put the same challenge that I put to some of our panellists earlier, that, yeah, you can point at these sort of ridiculous schemes about X or Y, but they don't amount to a hill hill of beans. I mean, the, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, £7 billion of spending there. Even if you axed it, you're only saving £7 billion. Childcare subsidies, again, you might want to get rid of those. That's only £6 billion. Uh, I mean, HS2 would be a big saving if that was cancelled, I grant you. But HS2 aside, where are the really big, chunky things that the TPA would say, get rid of this, get rid of that, get rid of the other? Give me, I don't know, £250 billion worth of savings. Well, to get towards them, maybe not quite that amount. But, I mean, one thing, to be fair to the government, they said when they, soon after they came in, basically moving a lot of civil servants from London. Um, now, I think there's a small treasury campus in Darlington, quite a few others sort of moving out of town. Bear in mind, of course, about three quarters are outside of... London in the first place, you've got about 100,000 civil servants here, but obviously to reduce the public sector payable or rather civil service payable quite substantially, that'd be um, a, a pretty reasonable saving. As you say, there are elements, you know, the Arts Council, for example, I mean, it's you know, slightly absurd, we're still subsidising that, but it's, it's not unimportant to smoke us on the, focus rather on the, on the small beer and um, move in that kind of direction. I think in, in terms of the really big ticket stuff, uh, you know, NHS spending is necessarily, uh, well, presently gargantuan um, and will be increasing quite substantially beyond that. And you I want that to go down then, do you? I think the mindset and the, the way that the government approaches this, from you know, this, this current government and previous ones as well, um, is, is difficult. You know, it's not a matter of sort of leftist or rightist economics. You know, in the absence of price mechanisms, which the NHS basically doesn't have beyond sort of dentistry charges and a few other outpatient operations, necessarily demand will always exceed supply. So therefore, the requirement that we're seeing, well, alleged requirement from the government for the health and social care levy and um, further in increases in spending will basically always be unchanged until that kind of dynamic is, is altered. Um, so if the government's going to you know, really grasp the nettle, um, they could be focusing on that. Um, and certainly if they were going to increase the amount of civil servants outside of London, reduce the pay bill, uh, we definitely welcome that as well. But uh, some of this is demographic, right? It's not, it's not uh, about the structure of the NHS. You and I would probably have a similarly dim view on the structure, but we're all getting older. Mm. Christ's sake, I'll turn 50 next month. I think my prospects of being England centre-forward are probably behind me. Um, but, the, but generally, we've got an ageing population. These are all, you know, whatever system you've got, I agree with you, a more, more, more marketised system would be a better one. Yeah. But 
you can't wish away an ageing population, right? No, no, certainly. And just think of the Wasp Women campaign that's been going for years and years. Obviously, a lot of the changes to uh, uh, the state pension, I think, were first announced basically when Cameron and Osborne arrived. A lot of these are still being introduced. So these these big changes for further massive outlays um, on, on those kind of benefits take take decades to be introduced. So this isn't something you can necessarily introduce overnight. But again, the mindset needs to switch so we can actually actually start doing that. And obviously, you know, pension specifically, we've had auto enrolments since I think sort of 2013, 14. So um, basically, for most people, automatically, PA, if you're on PAYE, some of your some of your salary is going to pension automatically. Yep. So yep. you know, small changes, but this will this will take time unless the government really really grasps it. Vicky, I know you need to leave us shortly, but I, I do want, because I'm going to move on to with Chris and Duncan in a moment, to the challenge of growth, but you put that, you, you put that front and centre. I'm not saying it gets rid of all of these problems, but my God, if you can actually get serious growth into the economy, right, what's been the growth since the global financial crash? Average of about 1% a year, possibly not even that high, compared to, what, 2.5% typical over No, that's time? the productivity growth. I mean, we actually had uh, quite, you know, towards the end uh, of that period, we had had you know, a number of years of two and a half, three percent growth as well. So, so on average, the growth was fine, but productivity was pretty, pretty poor. So, what's the solution to this? Because if we're, go if we're going to sort of say we can't really cut health expenditure that much, we might be able to make it more efficient. We can't cut pensions that much. We might be able to make them more efficient. Education, you were saying, Vicky, you'd like more to be spent on. These become possible, or the the debt time bomb becomes mitigated if growth and productivity improve. But what's the recipe for that? Well, it's R&D, which I think this government has realised that we need to do. In fact, I think we should say something about this today, if I'm not mistaken. So R&D yeah. really matters. And, uh, uh, you know, because if the tax credits you mentioned, but of course, in a much bigger way, we, we do spend less in, as a percentage of GDP on R&D than others. And certainly the government has been spending a lot less as a percentage. But interestingly, Rishi's point was that the private sector spends so much less than our OECD yes. counterparts. What's the why? Because there isn't a great incentive to do anything very much here. So there are universities, but the problem is that the D side is the thing that, that really suffers, the development. So a lot of working with our scientists and then the money that comes in to develop it is from elsewhere and things move or interesting companies get bought up early and then they get developed in the states right. so it doesn't happen here and that's the real problem even though we're not too bad in terms of venture capital by comparison to what happens in europe and vicky i'm asking everybody for their number out of 10 how much would you rate i, I knew whatever i said greg was going to add about half or one mm -hmm. onto it uh, i suspect you might be a bit more pessimistic than either of us that aren't you what yes. would be your score out of 10 and why I would put two. Two? Ooh, as bad as that. Well, I think this uh, statement was really meant to deal with the cost of living crisis, and it hasn't. So very little happened. I would have liked to have done a lot more for business, and it didn't do that either. So if you look at the net impact of it, it's not going to be particularly good. And I, I suspect if you were to ask people whether the 5p uh, of fuel uh, duty which has come down is going to make a big difference to their energy bills in the future and their ability to buy food uh, versus you know what they do about heating their homes they're probably going to say they didn't see any any benefit out of this at all so I think there's going to be a rethink I'm just looking at it just as a little step on on, a, on something bigger I think he was probably constrained waiting to see where some of his spending may go in the future mm. we touched on energy mm. I think there's going to be a huge amount of extra spending I'm afraid we're going to have to do if we're going to get to net zero and the government is going to have to act already they're talking about public investment companies on nuclear so I mean that requires spending mm. guarantees so what that's going to do to the overall sort of share of the economy I think it's going to be going up rather than down a pretty damning two from Vicky. Thanks very much for joining us. It's been lovely to Thank have you, you Vicky. Um, we're going to move into the third series of the programme. So I want to put a graph on screen now showing just what a difference growth could make. We're calling this final section full sense of security. Um, uh, now, what this graph shows you, well, UK GDP is presently 2.7 trillion um, US dollars. If the UK grew at 1%, per annum until 2050. Well, you can see that blue line on the on the graph. I'll give a printout to our two guests here. Uh, you know, well, obviously we get better, and our GDP at 2050, um, when we're laughably supposed to get to carbon net zero, would be $3.6 trillion. Now, supposing you could do a bit better than that, you could get to 2% 
economic growth. Well, that doesn't sound particularly impressive either. It's still a little lower than historical standards. But rather than being at 3.6 trillion US dollars, you'd be at 4.7 trillion US dollars. Quite a substantial difference, nearly an, more than an extra trillion on the economy within a generation and a bit. Supposing you're at 3%, GDP would be $6.3 trillion. And if you've got some sort of magic recipe, you know, maybe a mixture of the Vicky Price go for, go for growth through investment and R&D and some of the tax burdens reduced on business that Greg was suggesting. Supposing you get to 4% growth, let's be optimistic. Well, in 2050, GDP would be 8.2 trillion, more than twice as much as if we limp along at 1%. Chris, isn't this really where the action's at? I mean, we'll, we'll sit around and talk about Nick's thresholds and should income tax go down by tuppence rather than a penny and can we find savings on the NHS or should we close down the Arts Council or all the rest of it. But this really is the silver bullet if you can get this to work. And if you can't get it to work, we're kind of going to hell in a handcart anyway, aren't we? Well, I think we are going to hell in a handcart anyway. Uh, I think that's now... You're going to be even more same. miserable than Vicky about this. More miserable than I've been the last two years coming on the show. You keep mocking me when I come on. You ask me for my ratings for the country out of ten, and I say one or two, and you go, ah. well, who's laughing now? <laughs> well, you know, well, this is nobody's laughing. Plane, We're all bloody the miserable plane has crashed into the mountain, <laughs> and, yeah, is growth our best bet? Well, yeah, I guess it is, you know, I mean... <clears throat> It's the, only, it's the only possibility we have. Are we going to get it with this or any other government? No, because it's not what the public want. If you actually ask what the public, what they want, they, they don't want, want pro-growth policies. We're pay, paying a price now for essentially giving the public what they want, which is lot, lots more money spent on the NHS. They don't want fracking, they don't want nuclear. So now we are where we are, aren't we? You know, so I, I don't have any, uh, obviously, any optimism about the way things are going. And if you want to speak specifically about growth, yeah, we know the ways to have growth. We, we want low taxes, we want uh, a, a massive deregulation, and we're not going to get it. I'll give you one example. I, um, I heard this statistic this week, I believe it to be true. Um, Britain has more diversity and inclusion officers per capita than any other country. And this is a direct result of the Equality Act, a piece of legislation the Tories should immediately have repealed in 2020, or certainly in 2015 when they got rid of the Lib Dems. But they haven't, and they've shown no sign of doing so, even though it probably wouldn't actually be that unpopular, apart from with a bunch of fanatical uh, single-issue groups. That's just one example of how growth has slowed down in this country. It's not just pointless bureaucrats employed by the state. It's pointless bureaucrats employed effectively by private industry because to of comply. state, because of state regulation. Yeah. We, my, my ambition would be that no company with, more than, or with fewer than 500 people needs to have an HR department at all. HR departments are basically paid agents of the state, really. They're just there to enforce... You heard it here first, I'm saying to our COO and HR department here at the IA. We only have 34 members of staff, so you get they rid of the just there them to, immediately. If it wasn't for layers and layers of impenetrable and yeah, illogical okay. legislation, we wouldn't need them. Businesses would just go about their day enforcing rules based on common sense. But HR law, equality Act law, all this stuff yeah. is not based on common sense, and so you need to have people specifically employed in-house to deal with this. Yeah. That's just one example got of, it, got of it. the kind of deregulation we need. But it's not going to happen. OK, OK. Well, D Duncan, are you a bit cheerier on this? Obviously, you're from the Taxpayers' Alliance. Your organisation looks at tax and spend, and you might well say that getting spending down and taxes down is indeed a big part of the recipe for economic mm. growth. But are you with me and with this graph, which we can put up on the screen again? I mean, it's just absolutely monumental what you can achieve. Chris might be right. The spot price at any given point is, oh, I need more money to deal with this particular thing now. But if you, if you stay the course and find some recipe that gets you to 3 or 4% rather than 1%, 2%, in a generation's time, you're in a completely different ballpark. You know, as I said, you're looking potentially in this spread of 1% to 4% on the top end, GDP being more than twice of what it would be on the, the bottom end. Do you think growth is what we should be going for? And if so, what's your or the TPA's kind of prescription of how to get it? Uh, yeah, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm almost as pessimistic as Chris. Um, sure. I mean, you should tell us what you, what you really think, Chris. But um, uh, yes, I mean, it's a, pre it's a pretty bleak situation. I think, um, you know, one thing which was forgotten about today, obviously, it's been announced in the budget before last, the corporation tax, corporation tax increase that's going ahead uh, next financial year, so gradually going up to 25%. 
Um, I think that's pretty dangerous. And I think, bizarrely, there's a, almost a tacit acknowledgement that this is a pretty bad scheme. They're basically reintroducing this slightly lower rate of corporation tax to smaller firms. If, you, if the profit is less than 50k, you think it's much lower. If it's between 50k and 250, then it's graduated up towards um, 25%. Exactly. So they've, they've introduced a further complications as we soften the blow, which is you know, going to be pretty severe for a lot of, lot of companies um, in this country. Um, but I, th I think for a lot of business spending, it's, 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 it's quite worrying. I mean, you know, for example, with the various um, bounce back loan schemes and other, uh, other wheezes from the Treasury, which were introduced two years back. Um, when a lot of these loans are going to be, going to be called in and obviously they're guaranteed to a, a very large extent by the government, but there are a lot of zombie, zombie companies in this country <coughs> at the moment who aren't going to be in a good place um, either now or in, 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 in the short term. So um, some mitigation of the corporation tax increase, if not abolition, which I think is a very unlikely, such as continuing the super deduction, um, increasing the annual investment allowance, I think it's currently one or two million pounds, dramatic yeah. increase of that. So buying you know, plant and equipment and machinery yeah. Yeah. that becomes much more cost effective. I think those kind of changes would be absolutely worthwhile. And can I just say as well, this graph could equally be used for inflation. This effectively just shows compound effects. Well, so real, yes. So no, we true. want to look at how much your money gets eaten away by inflation over a period of time. Use this. And this only goes yeah. up to 4%. Well, we are now 6%, soon to be heading to 8%. Well, you're That's quite a right real how story. How That's really happening, is inflation. I, I, I Economic growth isn't. I promise on our next show to uh, to show you all of the wrist-slitting Chris Snowden pessimistic material as well. This was just speculation. How we might make the world better, I know Wake something up. that you believe can't possibly happen that will make the world better. But look, let me let me give you um, let me give you something to toy with as well. Look, it was only it's a very small thing, and I don't think it's going to make any real difference to people's standard of living, the cost of living, or decarbonisation. But uh, Rishi Sunak made a point of saying we're cutting all of the EU red tape brackets that applies to solar panels and putting a windmill on your roof. It was only that part of it. But nevertheless, this was a cut in, in Brussels regulations that we've inherited and now going to dispense with. We've got Jacob Rees-Mogg now at the Brexit Opportunities Unit, somebody who um, has certainly talked the talk on removing regulation. I might be with you that the, it's unlikely that the Conservatives are going to repeal the Equalities Act anytime soon. But it might be you can pick off, you know, 150, 200, 300 small things, which none of them are going to be transformative themselves, but in aggregate, get you a bit higher up my growth graph. Yeah, absolutely. I've been saying they should do this from day one. We voted for Brexit six years ago. It's only the last few weeks that Jacob Riggs-Mogg said, like, give us some ideas then. I mean, they should, for a start, they should have some ideas themselves. Surely they've got enough civil servants to actually look at the regulation and go, this is the stuff that needs to go. But OK, they're going to ask the people, they're going to have... How many civil servants do you know who look at regulations and say, I've well, got they a whole don't. Of ideas that what needs to go? And exactly, on. that's really my point, is that <laughs> they won't do. And whatever is suggested... Do you remember in 2010 when Nick Clegg and David Cameron had a national appeal for laws to get rid of? Do you remember <laughs> that? <laughs> Absolutely nothing changed. Partly because most of the suggestions were like, we want to bring back the death penalty and get rid of the smoking ban. Yeah. But We're nothing changes. The death penalty. That's not obviously a deregulatory move. No, it's not. It? Really. Yeah. <laughs> it depends how you look at it. But, anyway. <laughs> but I'm sure there were, amongst, amongst the, you know, the, the pro-capital punishment people, some fairly sensible regulatory suggestions. Nothing <laughs> changed because politicians, single issue pressure groups, civil servants would have come in and said, actually, there's a reason for this, there's a reason for this, we can't do this, we can't do that. It's not, it's not really going to happen. I'll believe it if I can get an e-cigarette that I can put more than two mils of vape juice into it, and the vape juice has more than 2% nicotine. This will be I'll the acid test it. of whether the government It is, because I, it actually yeah. will for me, because it's <laughs> something I know about that was actually affected by EU regulation, yeah. and is clearly illogical and yeah. petty. All right. All right. Duncan, from your side, what about simplifying the tax code. Let's just put aside the scale of the burden at the moment. You and I would both want the tax burden to be lower. <coughs> but if you could just make it simpler, so same burden, whatever burden it's going to be, but, and I think these are statistics from the Taxpayers Alliance, or you guys in the IA certainly using the tax codes, about 13 times the length of War and Peace, a bit more than 13 times the length of the King James Bible, therefore generates an industry of compliance and advice and which loopholes can you get around. It's, you know, I don't have particularly complex finances, but I can't quite get my head around what the most tax efficient thing is to do and whether I should do it or not. Viciously complicated. Would simplifying that actually be a meaningful benefit, tidying it all up, or doesn't it really matter that much? I've heard some folk at the IA suggest actually a complex tax code is a good way of keeping the overall tax burden down. 
Uh, it's definitely a good way of keeping very well-paid corporate lawyers in the city um, in employment. That's that's for sure. I mean, the, I think the current tax code, the current tax code, is now approaching thirty thousand pages. Um, so it's it's bad, but um, but yeah, it's absolutely worth going for simplification. Obviously, what's been announced it was a slightly mixed bag today with NICs going up, but then also the threshold rising as well. So, you know, with the equalisation, for now at least, with mm -hmm. the threshold between income tax and national insurance, and so that's a, that's a recognition that these are two iterations of the same thing, taxes on taxes on labour. Um, that's definitely a good start. Now, don't get me wrong, I mean, there's, there's many areas. I mean, VAT is a complete minefield uh, to reform. Obviously, it's one of the more effective taxes on, on, on consumption. But... Um, Certainly, with, 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 that, with that being announced today, and obviously you know, uh, the chance of sort of broader tax plan, those sort of three elements, um, seemingly it's, it, it's moving in the right direction. Obviously, we've got the Office for Tax Simplification, which does um, some quite good work, but does very, very technical, very specific stuff. I think a much more strategic approach to seemingly what the Chancellor was saying today to move towards um, that, that kind of equalisation. Help me with this a bit, right? Because I, I just wonder whether tax simplifications are kind of, you know, obsession for kind of nerdy people on the right of centre with some sort of form of OCD. I mean, why is it really help that the NICS threshold and the income tax threshold's in the same place? It's just a number in a spreadsheet. Does it really make, does it really make the IEA's payroll more simple? I mean, we just plug in whatever the threshold is for each and the numbers are spat <laughs> out. Is that really going to... How's that going to make my tax compliance any easier? Well, I, 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 suppose, I suppose it's right. I mean, a lot of it's just, you know, PAYE deduction. As I was saying earlier, you don't really see it. You just recognise you've got an income which is less than what you kind of thought it was and you get your first job and then that's, that's, that's kind of the long, the long and the short of it. Um, but I think, I think part of it sort of more esoterically is that it's removing some of the power of, um, you know, the wise old men in the Treasury who are determining or, you know, kind of guiding ministers towards these kind of complications. And I think with them doing less in theory, that kind of system can be sustained. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of first, um, first step today is welcome. Um, but, you know, obviously there's a huge amount more for the government to do on that. Chris, other than uh, you making sure you can get stronger... Um, vaping juice mm. in your electronic cigarette and your pleas for the Conservatives to abolish the Equalities Act, what would be your third recommendation, a trifecta to really go for supercharging growth? Super, well, just massive deregulation. I mean, it, there's, there's enough to be getting on with there. You know, Rishi, if you're watching, <laughs> then just give me, give me the, the power to order these people. I'll do an A to Z. I mean, you say, this is the thing, you say, I mean, people always say, well, this is the Arts Council, it sucks a lot of money in. But it's not that much in the great... Nothing's that much in the great scheme of things. That's what happens if you have a massively bloated state. Everything seems small compared to the size of the state itself. You need someone to go through line by line. And, yeah, a billion there, a billion there, pretty soon you're adding up to real money, as somebody said. You know, that's, that's what never happened. And that's what was supposed to happen with so-called austerity. And people now still talk about austerity as if it was some horrendous thing. You know the figure better than me. How much did public spending fall by during so-called austerity? Uh, like a fraction of a percent or something? One percent yeah, between right. 2010 and 2015, and yeah. yet the, the, the Tory and the party deficit kept going. I mean, the, 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 the deficit wasn't eliminated. Oh, we were still living not. beyond our means. Certainly yeah. not. And the deficit has been been yeah. you know, been there since 2001. This is look. I'm not here to kind of save the UK economy. I'm here to bury it today. <laughs> I am. I mean, look, we we at the IA we warn people for years and years and years what's going to happen if you don't listen to us, and now people are starting to realise what's what's happened. Right? We've got a we've got a a, 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 so a, a we're nation. Going to hell in the but at least, we are. Look, at least we in this building can feel a bit of chardon for there, you, know, right? Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, but I, I'd rather not be here. But I mean, the, the best thing Rishi Sunak could have done today was just abolish alcohol duty, because that's the only thing left for us now is just drinking. <laughs> right? The world it was, was screwed in every which way, and coming up with different policies. Oh, we should have done this. Should have, it was not going to make any difference, right? We, we, the economy, as we know it, for the next few years is finished, and lots of people are going to suffer. Duncan, and it's not Duncan, because of things that were said today, Duncan, it's because of plans made over the last 20 years. Duncan, cheer me up against this sort of nihilistic, alcoholic strategy for, for doom. I, I, I basically agree with Chris. Good last. <laughs> I, just can't, I just can't put it in the same kind of terms that he does. So, um, so I'm going to ask each of you, then, before we wrap up, what's your score out of 10 for, um, for Rishi Sunak's? Mini budget, mitigation budget, spring statement, call it what you will. God, I mean, I started out at a pretty chirpy six and a half or seven. My God, you guys have depressed me over the past 20 minutes. Uh, what, what's your number, Duncan? Does it have to be a whole number we can use? Uh, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you go to one decimal point. Really? Okay. Yeah. I'll go for a six point four. Six point four. Very surprised with the threshold increasing, the equalisation with income tax. 
Uh, Nick's obviously shouldn't, the broader eyes for national insurance shouldn't have gone ahead. Uh, fuel duty, great news. Fuel duty in particular as well. I remember listening to the radio a couple of days and I can't remember who was speaking about, um, oh, well, you know, this has cost the Treasury X number of billions over the last 10 years with the freeze. Of course, not acknowledging that, I mean, he was almost certainly a Londoner speaking from here, doesn't own a car. Uh, two-thirds of journeys, two-thirds of commutes, rather, are, are done in people's people's cars rather than public transport. So it's absolutely the correct thing for the government to introduce that, albeit for one year. Um, so six and a half. Not not brilliant, but could have been... 6.4. You've gone up already. There's inflation yeah, for you. Yeah. Myself, <laughs> and um, Chris, are you even going to undercut Vicky Price's miserable two? Come well, on, just share some rays it of just, Snowden's uh, sunshine with us. It just doesn't matter. God. It's irrelevant. It's, it's, it's <laughs> moving around deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, politically, it's probably pretty good. I'd probably give it 9 out of 10 politically. I mean, for the next two years, we could look forward to a 1p reduction in, in income tax. So, yeah, cool. It also, by the way, it shows, and no one's mentioned this on the show, shows that the election is going to be in 2024, not 2023. That's isn't it? a very good tip. So that's quite interesting. So but on no, the upside... Sunak's improved your betting book with Betfair Exchange on the timing of the next election. Sadly, I haven't, I haven't backed right. a, a 2024 election. I put all my money into oil. Oh, well, that's given you a very good rate of return. So 9 out of 10 for politics, but for economics? I don't care. It doesn't matter. But, but below zero. Five. I, I, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Right, None of it's important. More or the, less. The, the plane has already crashed into the map. Uh, there you go. I'm going to leave you, ladies and gentlemen, on that upbeat note from Chris Snowden. I mean, I guess it's slightly upbeat. It doesn't matter, I guess, is a, kind of a, a nicer way of looking at, at it. Duncan, Chris, thanks very much for joining us on this um, spring uh, statement special of Live Littlewood. My thanks, too, to Greg Smith and Vicky Price for joining us earlier in the show. Thanks to all of you for watching at home. If you've enjoyed the programme, please hit the thumbs up. And if you're not yet a subscriber to the IEA London YouTube channel, please hit that subscribe, that red subscribe button, and the notification bell. That way you'll be informed of all of our upcoming videos. Several come out every week. Uh, thanks, too, to our patrons uh, who help keep the lights on here and ever more expensive thing to do, and particularly our top tier IEA online patrons, Donald Blaney, Costa Manis, James Burns, Mark Edwards, Philip Ozov, Richard Leader, Robert Appleby and Timothy Worrell and all of the others of you who donate your hard-earned cash. Um, I hope you're feeling a bit more cheerful than my colleague Christopher Snowden, uh, but however cheerful or miserable you're feeling, thanks for watching, stay safe, stay free, over and out. <laughs>